everyone, and welcome to the June 26th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our top stories. A new WCAB en banc decision rejected what it called a vocational theory of apportionment, insisting instead that apportionment must be consistent with the medical evidence. In this case, Grace Nunes sustained two admitted industrial injuries while employed by the State of California Department of Motor Vehicles. The central issue in this case was apportionment. The parties had selected Melinda Brown, MD, to act as the QME in orthopedic medicine. In one of the two cases, Dr. Brown determined that applicant's left shoulder injury was 100% industrial, while in the second case, 40% of the cervical spine injury was attributed to non-industrial factors. The applicant's vocational expert evaluated her feasibility for voc rehab and concluded that she sustained a 100% loss of access to the open labor market. And on the issue of apportionment, Mr. Gonzalez said that from a vocational standpoint, Ms. Nunes' pre-existing non-industrial degenerative condition had zero impact to her earning capacity, and that the limitations that have rendered Ms. Nunes 100% permanently and totally disabled are a direct result of one of the two injuries only, the left shoulder and cervical spine injury on September 13, 2011. Then, Dr. Kubatian performed a VR assessment on behalf of the employer and concluded that it is likely that MS Nunes is not employable in the competitive labor market, resulting in a substantial loss of future earning capacity. However, he also said that there was at least 10% vocational apportionment from non-industrial medical factors. The work comp judge issued an unapportioned award of 100% total disability based on the analysis that she was found to be 100% disabled as there was no evidence of previous loss of earning capacity. Reconsideration was granted and the award was rescinded in the en banc decision of Grace Nunes versus State of California Department of Motor Vehicles. The panel noted that Labor Code Section 4663C requires medical evidence to establish apportionment of permanent disability, but does not provide for collateral sources of expert opinion as to apportionment or any other standard for apportionment. Accordingly, they said that vocational apportionment offered by a non-physician is not a statutorily authorized form of apportionment, and apportionment determinations that deviate from the mandatory standards described in Labor Code 4663C are not a valid basis upon which to determine permanent disability. Then the WCAB went on to say that while vocational evidence may be utilized to assess factors of permanent disability, including whether an injured employee is feasible for vocational retraining. In order to constitute substantial evidence, vocational reporting must consider valid medical apportionment rather than a competing theory of vocational apportionment.
Thus, the WCAB on uh, Bank concluded by saying, Number one, Section 4663 requires a reporting physician to make an apportionment determination and prescribes the standard for apportionment, and the Labor Code makes no statutory provision for vocational apportionment. And in another WCAB panel decision, it was decided that caregivers' injury while driving to work was not barred by the going and coming rule. In this case, Sky Gray was a caregiver who had been hired by a company, Comfort Keepers Home Care, whose employees bid on available shifts and are required to have reliable transportation to get to their shifts. But... Any employee may accept or reject an assignment by email. On the date of her injury, she was driving to her shift in her personal vehicle shortly before midnight when she was involved in a motor vehicle accident. This was the first time she had been to this particular location. She was in a coma after the accident and was pregnant at the time and miscarried after the accident. The distance between her home and her job assignment was about 20 miles, and this specific job did not require her to run errands for the client or take the client anywhere. She was not traveling to a fixed business at a fixed time, nor was she traveling between assignments, and she was not carrying supplies or tools for the employer, but was required to have reliable transportation even though a bus pass would have been sufficient. But in this case, she was traveling late at night to a new location, and it is unknown whether any public transportation was even available at that time of day. After a trial, the work comp judge found the injury to be compensable and that it was not barred by the going and coming rule. The employer's petition for reconsideration was denied in the panel decision of Gray versus Comfort Keepers Home Care. It said that under the well-established going and coming rule, injuries sustained while an employee is going and coming to and from the place of employment do not normally arise out of and in the course of employment because the employee is neither providing benefit to the employer nor under the control of the employer during that commute. However, in 1972, the California Supreme Court case of Hinosa versus WCAB held that the rule applies to a local commute en route to a fixed place of business at fixed hours, which was not the case here. The panel also went on to say that the required vehicle exception may also apply when the employee is expressly or impliedly required to or expected to furnish his own means of transportation to the job, which in this case could have been the fact because no public means of transportation was available at the time. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce recently filed a federal lawsuit claiming that the price negotiation program created under last year's Federal Inflation Reduction Act is unconstitutional, violating due process and other constitutional protections. 
The Chamber lawsuit was filed just days after pharmaceutical giant Merck & Company filed a similar federal lawsuit in early June. Merck alleged the same law is a violation of their Fifth Amendment rights, which requires the government to fairly compensate companies or individuals for property that is used for the public good, among other theories. Then, last Friday, Bristol-Myers Squibb filed a similar lawsuit. All three lawsuits take aim at the Drug Price Negotiation Program for Medicare, which Congress passed as part of this Inflation Reduction Act last summer. The program creates a framework under which federal officials sit down with prescription drug manufacturers and negotiate voluntary price agreements that supposedly will save money for American taxpayers while ensuring that the companies remain able to continue investing into research and development of new life-saving medicines. Under this program, Medicare will begin negotiating prices for drugs beginning in 2026. This new law amends Medicare's non-interference clause, which prevents the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services from interfering with negotiations between drug manufacturers, pharmacies, and Medicare prescription drug plans by establishing a new drug price negotiation program. Days after this Inflation Reduction Act was passed, the biopharma industry blasted the policy. And then, according to an April 2023 white paper published by the University of Southern California Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics, about how CMS will implement a key feature of the program, known as the maximum fair price, remained to them unclear. And now our crime report. Alta Vista Healthcare and Wellness Center, a skilled nursing facility in Riverside, California, and its management company, Rockport Healthcare Services, a privately held California corporation that provides management services to skilled nursing facilities, have entered into a settlement agreement to pay the United States and the state of California a total of $3.825 million dollars to resolve allegations that they submitted false claims to Medicare and Medicaid because they paid kickbacks to physicians to induce patient referrals. The settled amount was negotiated based on Alta Vista's and Rockport's lack of ability to pay any more. The California and federal anti-kickback statutes prohibit paying remuneration to induce the referral of items or services covered by Medicare, Medicaid, or other federally funded programs. Alta Vista, under the direction and control of Rockport, gave certain physicians extravagant gifts, including expensive dinners for the physicians and their spouses, golf trips, limousine rides, massages, e-reader tablets, and gift cards worth up to $1,000. And they also paid physicians monthly stipends of $2,500 to $4,000 purportedly for their services as medical directors. At least one purpose of these gifts and payments was to induce these physicians to refer patients to Alta Vista.
Under the terms of the settlement agreement, they will pay over $3,228,000 to the United States and nearly $597,000 to the state of California. This case began as a whistleblower complaint filed in 2015 by a former AltaVista accounting employee who will receive nearly $582,000 as her share of the federal government's recovery in this case. And in regulatory news, a CWCI review of the California Private Self-Insurer's 2022 claim experience concluded that the California Workers' Compensation Private Self-Insured Claim Frequency rose 6% last year as both medical-only and indemnity claim volume increased. But some good news. Average paid and incurred losses both declined. Thus, together, their total paid losses at first report fell 1.2% to $311 million, while their incurred losses fell 3.3% to just under $812 million. The summary reports on experience of California private self-insured employers who's covered 2.49 million workers last year. This marked the third year in a row that the private self-insured indemnity claim count has risen. The overall claim count for 2022 works out to 4.31 claims per 100 private self-insured employees, the highest rate in at least 16 years. First report, total incurred losses on the private self-insured incurred claims, which include paid benefits plus reserves for future payments, also fell in 2022. The overall decline here was due to the decline in the medical side as total incurred medical fell by $30.5 million. The declines in private self-insurers total paid and incurred losses in the face of an 11.5% increase in claim volume suggest an influx of relatively inexpensive claims, many of which may have been COVID-19 claims. The increased number of inexpensive claims helped drive down private self-insured's average incurred medical and average incurred indemnity last year. CWCI members and subscribers may log on to the communications section of the CWCI website at www.cwci.org to view a summary bulletin with more detailed analyses and graphics. And in medical news, the healthcare system has undergone major changes in the past decade. And emergency department crowding has worsened over time. However, the most recent patterns in ED capacity and use in California have yet to be studied in detail. Ensuring a sufficient supply of emergency department resources is especially important in California which ranked ninth in the nation in 2022 for states with the longest emergency department waiting times, with a median waiting time of 164 minutes. And crowding in the emergency department is a substantial concern because it has been associated with increased mortality, longer lengths of stay, and clinician error. So researchers from the University of California, San Francisco decided to investigate how have emergency department capacity 
and use changed in California since 2011? And has the supply of acute care resources kept up with the demand for care? This retrospective cohort study used data from the California Department of Healthcare Access and Information and the U.S. Census Bureau to analyze facility characteristics for more than 400 general acute care hospitals with more than 320 emergency departments in California, as well as patients who presented to those emergency departments for the decade between 2011 and 2021. And their study was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Network Open. The researchers found that statewide emergency departments and hospital beds both declined by 3.8% and 2.5% respectively over the 10-year period. At the same time, the number of annual visits to ERs grew by 7.4% from 12.1 million to 12.9 million visits per year. The number of annual visits for severe conditions shot up in particular by 68%. The researchers say the decrease in the number of emergency departments may be a result of facility closures and hospital consolidations, often a symptom of insufficient hospital funding. And staffing shortages have also been cited as a major challenge in keeping emergency departments open. Researchers made note of another study which found that most emergency department expansion has been localized in affluent or more commercially insured areas, supporting the idea that increased emergency department capacity has not occurred evenly across all socioeconomic populations. The 10th Annual Report by Congress was published by the FDA on June 7, 2023, and it summarizes the major actions taken by the FDA during 2022 to prevent or mitigate drug shortages in the United States. The FDA reported that at the height of the drug shortage crisis, the number of new drug shortages tracked by the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research quadrupled from about 61 shortages in 2005 to more than 250 in 2021. But now they say the number of new drug shortages per calendar year has declined from a high of 250 in 2011 to only 49 in 2022. Although the number of new drug shortages has declined since 2011, the FDA in general terms cautions that Shortages continue to pose a real challenge to public health, but they do not specifically point out any particular supply crisis on the immediate horizon. But then again, a new report just published by Kaiser Health News does not depict a good picture for drug shortages, especially in the generic drug marketplace. Kaiser Health News reports that Cisplatin and carboplatin are among scores of drugs in shortage, including 12 other cancer drugs, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder pills, blood thinners, and antibiotics. And Kaiser Health News claims that COVID hangover supply chain issues and 
limited FDA oversight are part of the problem. But the main cause is the underlying weakness of the generic drug industry. These old but crucial drugs are often sold at a loss or for little profit and are made mostly overseas since domestic manufacturers have little interest in making them. Setting their sights instead on high-priced drugs with plump profit margins. The 10 cancer clinicians Kaiser Health News interviewed for this story said that given current shortages, they are forced to prioritize patients who can be cured over later stage patients and whom the drugs can generally only slow the progress of cancer and for whom alternatives, though sometimes less effective and often with more side effects, are available. But then again, some doctors are even rationing doses intended to cure. The causes of shortages are well established. The average net price of generic drugs fell by more than half between 2016 and 2022, and some generic manufacturers are going out of business. Acorn, which makes 75 common generics, went bankrupt and closed this February. Israeli generics giant Teva, which has a portfolio of 3,600 medicines, announced on May 18th it was shifting to brand name products and high-value generics. Lynette Company, with about 120 generics, announced a Chapter 11 reorganization amid declining revenue and other companies are also in trouble. The generics industry used to lose is used to losing money about a third of the on a third of the drugs it produced. But now it's more likely to lose half in half of them. So when a company stops making a drug, other companies do not necessarily step up. So Kaiser Health News concluded by saying that despite a drug shortage task force and numerous congressional hearings, progress to resolve drug shortages has been slow at best. The VA Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act of 2017 is a law that was passed by the United States Congress to improve accountability and whistleblower protection within the Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Care Program. Prior to passage of this act, it was whistleblowers who helped expose the nationwide scandal over long waits for care at VA facilities. Beginning in 2014, VA medical facilities across the country were found to have covered up delays in providing care, making waits as long as four months appear much shorter. The law created a new Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protections, OAWP, within the VA, which is responsible for investigating allegations of misconduct and retaliation against whistleblowers. The law also expanded the definition of protected disclosures to include allegations of gross mismanagement, gross waste of funds, and abuse of authority. Following passage of the Act, members of Congress asked the Office of the Inspector General to determine the success or failure of the VA in implementing this Act. 
The Office of Inspector General reported in October 2019 that implementation was not successful. And it does not seem that things have gotten much better with the VA since the 2019 OIG report. Earlier this year, California Congressional Representative Jay Obernolte issued a press release stating that the VA informed him that it will no longer use the tools provided by the bipartisan VA Accountability Whistleblower Protection Act, claiming that the Biden administration paused the use of this new law. At the time of this press release, the congressman wanted information about a situation at the Loma Linda VA Medical Center, where a supervisory employee continues to be employed by the medical center despite creating a hostile work environment and hindering the good delivery of services to veterans. Also last April 2023, United States Senators Marco Rubio from Florida and Steve Daines from Montana sent a letter bashing U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs Secretary for announcing the VA will ignore important provisions of the VA Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act starting April 3rd. The VA claimed the reason was that the Federal Labor Relations Authority found VA violated its collective bargaining agreement with the American Federation of Government Employees when it eliminated performance improvement plans from the pre-disciplinary process. And the decision required VA to reinstate all employees fired without first being provided such a plan. And the situation at Loma Linda VA is discussed in detail by a news story published in June by Military.com. According to its report, several VA Loma Linda healthcare system whistleblowers have come forward with its new allegations of retaliation, harassment, and hostile working conditions among a widening investigation by the House Veterans Affairs Committee. A Southern California news group report revealed a 2021 federal investigation found that a VA Loma Linda manager frequently used racial slurs, required workers to buy him food and drive him to and from work, and then punished those who refused his demands with bad assignments. Instead of being terminated for creating such a hostile work environment, this manager was inexplicably promoted. The same manager was also the focus of two other VA Loma Linda investigations in 2022 and 2020 that substantiated allegations he fostered a hostile work environment. In a heavily redacted 61-page report obtained by the Southern California News Group, there were numerous instances where inappropriate language and racial slurs were used, which they say appears to be a common practice and inappropriate and discriminatory hiring practices were found, which have contributed to the lack of trust, poor morale, and fractured culture at that facility. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for 
the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I am Renee Foles with Floyd Scarron, Minuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. 